1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone and welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Journal of Asian American Studies. I am your host Chris Patterson, speaking to you from the ancestral, traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam people. On the University of British Columbia campus. This episode will be the second of a four-part series featuring the winners and honorable mentions of the 2021 Book Awards for the Association of Asian American Studies. Since 1987, the Book Awards at the annual Asian American Studies Association Conference or AAAS has given valuable attention onto the works in Asian American Studies that have been leading the field And have spotlighted works that seek to generatively disrupt, challenge, or undo the norms of Asian American studies, keeping the field dynamic in its ideas, animated in its possible uses, and broadly affective in its possible impacts to educators, organizers, and the general public. While our first episode focused on the book awards in social sciences and literary studies, this episode focuses specifically on the winners in creative writing poetry. Past winners in these categories include groundbreaking work like Kimiko Hahn's collection, Earshot in 1992, or Solomaj Sharif's Book of Poems, Look, in 2018. This year, the winners we talked to challenge the categories of Asian American through a proliferation of ways of being as migrants, witnesses, and communities. First, we will begin our interview with bin Nakahasebe Naka Hasebe Kingsley, whose poetry collection, Colonize Me?, explores the lives of those communities and peoples on the intersections of indigeneity, migration, Asian, queerness, and lower class. Our second interview will be with Jan Henry Gray, whose collection, Documents, traces his upbringing as a queer undocumented Filipino American. To begin each interview, I will be reading from the rationales written by the award committees. As we will often discuss racial, gendered, and sexual violence, Please remain mindful of where our discussions are going, and take care.
0: I also had in the back of my mind that, you know, there was this possibility that poetry could be affecting and political and kind of brilliantly immediate. I'm here with Benjamin
1: Nakahasebe Kingsley, He belongs to the Onondaga Nation of Indigenous Americans in New York and is an assistant professor of poetry and nonfiction in Old Dominion University's MFA program. An Afrolation author and Kundiman alumni, Ben is the author of three poetry collections, Not Your Mama's Melting Pot, Deimos, and his AAAS award-winning collection, Colonize Me. As the award committee wrote, quote, Colonize Me offers a revitalizing energy and depth that immerses readers in stories of family and community, both those that we are born with and those that we choose. Some are searing indictments of US colonialism. Others are moving elegies or overturnings through love. All are born of family stories and witness of violence and hope. In form, subject matter, and vision, Kingsley's poems embody plurality, inventiveness, and empowerment. They linger at the edges of multiple identities, histories, and types of yearning, and through them, a strong sense of bravery, wisdom, and triumph emerges. They are about a longing to be seen, to belong, and ultimately to survive, and by the end, not only has the speaker found their own survival, they've rescued others and their histories too. As the poet says, quote, Boys like me aren't supposed to make national news. Colonize Me heralds a singular Asian American voice that punches hard and true. And now to the interview. Can you uh, begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to write the uh, book of poetry, Colonize Me?
0: Yeah, sure thing. I'd absolutely love to. I'm Ben Kingsley, uh, same name and haircut as... That actor guy, um, I've written three books now. Uh, The first is Not Your Mama's Melting Pot. The second, Colonize Me. And just out a little over a week ago now, I think is Demos with Milkweed Editions. I'm a professor in the Master of Fine Arts program at Old Dominion University, uh, which is in Norfolk, right next to Virginia Beach. What we're talking about, I'm thinking, is "Colonize Me," which is my second book, and I came to write it very much the same way an author often comes to write their first book. There's this kind of cliche in poetry that a poet's first book will be autobiographical, and the second, third, et cetera, books will be about things that are kind of, you know, air quotes, uh, much more vital or profound. And sometimes I really like to lean into cliche and try and, you know, blow it out, <laughs> right? So my first three books are all, I hope, deeply personal and couldn't have been written by someone else um, by any other
1: name. That's terrific that they have that in poetry. It's the same in fiction writing and in, mm-hmm. um, in academia, actually. I remember as a grad student, you kind of get swayed from doing me studies, <laughs> I think <laughs> especially in ethnic studies, right? yeah. But then you realize that that's actually, you know, your position and all that. And so so that's a great thing to (laughs) lean into.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. I hope so.
1: (laughs) So what have been some of the main um, inspirations for you as a a writer? Do you see your book in conversation with um, Asian-American literatures or with other um, literary contexts?
0: There was a kind of like an infinite whirlwind of inspirations for my work. I really, really want to be... kind of close observer or craftsperson that is inspired by I guess absolutely everything. I'm in a funky situation as an artist in 2021. I don't fit neatly into any of our intersectional categories, right? My mother was half Onondaga, which is Indigenous American by way of upstate New York, and my father was half Cuban and half Appalachian. Uh, they were both uh, true temper wheelbarrow factory workers. So if you know those like shiny blue pieces of construction equipment. So I really didn't grow up in a house where art or poetry was prized. But in terms of influences, there was this very long standing family mythology that we were once tethered. Not to Appalachia, not to Pennsylvania. Right, we were kind of grown from nobler stock, so to say. My great grandfather Nakahasebe was imprisoned in mid World War II Japan for writing a hybrid poem slash essay called "See the Warhorse Cry," and that essay was a critique of Japan's involvement in the war. Uh, he was beaten and imprisoned. So well i grew up kind of going to these underfunded public schools where poetry was i usually call it like a stale white saltine cracker right i also had in the back of my mind that you know there was this possibility that poetry could be affecting and political and kind of brilliantly immediate and i think that will always be my biggest influence and then for this book specifically very quickly The other influence is definitely Adrian C. Lewis, a Lovelock Paiute author and poet uh, who I dedicated this book to. His poems, as he would say, are a, you know, quote, real pain in the pain in the butt, pain in the keister, as he would say. And I love his irreverence and refusal of easy categories for especially indigeneity. He was so generously supposed to be my one and only blurbist actually for uh, Colonize Me, but he passed right before it, uh, it came out. The last thing that he told me was that my uh, quote shitty manuscript, right, was on his bedside. Uh, and so I think he would love, uh, you know, the joke that those same shitty poems, you know, what were made him kick the, uh, the proverbial bucket. <laughs> and, and so Colonize Me is definitely um, in his memory and in conversation I hope with his brilliant legacy. Th- that's very on
1: point. I think for some of the, several of the winners in this, of this year, it seems like what's drives a lot of the writers these days is actually, you know, not being able to assort easily into an identity hmm. uh, and finding energy and, and purpose and, or just, you know, like you're saying, uh, kind of annoying people, <laughs> unsettling <laughs> audiences um, just by your
0: very existence of like being an unsettling force, I suppose. Yeah. I seem to have like caught a kind of wonderful, you know, wave where intersections are crossing, but it certainly wasn't always like this, you know, like being mixed race was definitely a kind of different uh, bag of, bag of worms, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah.
1: Well, I believe you've prepared a short reading of your work. Would you like to read it now?
0: Yeah. I decided to start off just by reading something from the front matter, a kind of inscription that I wrote that gives a bit of background. Um, There's no title. It's just at the very beginning of the book and it's, from Nippon refugee who America caged, from Onondaga's son who America imprisoned, who they couldn't board into whiteness, from rust belt trailers, from two wheelbarrow factory workers, from PA to LA to MIA to out here in West Baltimore, from country, excuse me, from counting every penny to carving the love of poems, From unheard prayers and these answered dreams, we are here, I am here, I am alive. I love that I missaid counting as country. I've been thinking a lot about country in the last book. And speaking of the poem um, that I decided to read, just this one poem, after that little bit of lensing detail, uh, it is called, I Can't Close My Eyes, without seeing Jason Pirro's body. Uh, Jason Pirro was a 14 year old boy who was shot just outside of his home uh, on Bad River Reservation. So this poem is called, I Can't Close My Eyes Without Seeing Jason Pirro's Body. Boys like us don't make national news. That's what we tell each other fleeing the long blue arms of police LEDs. Our high top Reeboks kissed gravel, miles of central Pennsylvania street. Us not old enough to have kissed a lover. Boys like us cops shoot and ask questions never. We laughed, we ran, we laughed, we hollered pig, as if it was just another pickup game of basketball on blacktop. We were so young. How young is too young to teach a boy never turn his index finger and thumb into the hammered steel of a gun? You might die. I breathe for decades, older and older, and now when I close my eyes I can see Jason Pirro isn't with us boys, us running from cops. Jason is at home. He was a teddy bear, said his grandpa. He teased his little nephews once in a while, but that was the meanest part he had. Jason Pirro is in his front yard making the best of our Bad River Reservation, turning porch boughs into a drum set, each stick cracking stained wood. He imagines making it all the way to high school, drum line, and here comes that cop with report of, Quote, a man carrying a knife, end quote, and here is Jason drumming, and here there will be no justice for death, no video, evidence of Jason's dying, just this one that plays out endlessly in my head. The greatest horror writers know it's worse when you can't see the monster, jaws that catch claws that bite, hidden just off screen. In, On- in Onondaga, our clan mother says, Kassentha, I hide something, akwerekon, in my heart. But tonight I am done with hiding. Jason Piro was shot once in the shoulder and once in the heart, and my heart beats faster. The longer I sleep, the longer I close my eyes, the longer we hide.
1: I was really taken by, first of all, like the of course, the force of the poem itself and being about a real person, but also in talking about what this person is imagining, knowing well from the beginning what's at stake here. Can you talk a bit about how you yourself imagined this poem?
0: Yeah, no doubt. This poem was uh, terribly, terribly difficult to write. Um, I was reading through the, you know, news articles and there's always a real tension um, with, you know, how do I kind of act in witness or speak in witness or write in witness and also handle the material, this very sensitive material with kind of, you know, grace and, you know, be an excellent steward of that, um, you know, material uh, and so I was thinking about the you know 14 year old boy who was killed just outside of his home. Uh, I was thinking about him, as you said, that kind of imagining of him being part of his school's drum circle, which was in the reports. And I was thinking about him being shot once in the shoulder and once in the heart. Um, you know, and now I'm thinking about George Floyd and the ongoing trial, and I'm thinking about. You know, the Asian grandmother who was savagely beaten on, I think it was uh, Market Street in San Francisco just a week ago. And there's often, you know, too much that kind of inspires or like raises my heart into my throat. Uh, And so I hope that this poem did a good job speaking in witness, but difficult to write and also difficult to read every every single time without a doubt. Well, you yourself are an educator as someone
1: who uses literature or poetry in the classroom, how might you see your own work being used or poems like this being used in the classroom? Or I don't know if being used is the right word, Um, (laughs) you know, but being uh, undertaken in the classroom.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I'm in a really, really uh, blessed, like wonderful position to be a professor of other professors, like I'm a professor in an MFA program, so my students are earning their, you know, highest kind of terminal art degree to maybe go on to be professors themselves. and. Uh, They teach students, um, and it's the most wonderful job in the entire world. But I'm also like a kind of, how would I say, this is kind of gross to say, but like a C minus tier poet. So (laughs) I'm not being hit up all the time to have my, you know, books taught, et cetera, right? Um, I would just be so delighted if anyone would, you know, want to teach my book. Um, ah, Man, more specifically, I would, you know, love for anyone to embrace that I'm, from kind of four different diasporas, like we talked about earlier, and um, embrace that my work tries hard. I hope to trouble those all too easy or kind of monolithic categories that we sometimes want to uh, wedge authors into. Uh, there's so much wonderful, wonderful poetry being written right now, and so I would honestly just be honored to be on anyone's reading list, or let alone assigned on their syllabus uh, in you know any way, shape, or just one. Uh, poem form.
1: Well, you mentioned these um, four diasporic backgrounds. And I mean, I could envision that being very pertinent in a lot of courses these days that are trying to think more intersectionally and also trying to think about, you know, what, how, what does intersectionality propose as far as like time and space? And your, your own movement has been like all over, not all over, but it <laughs> has been from, you know, different cities, uh, as we were discussing before this Los Angeles and Miami, Philadelphia, I think one thing with these awards I know there are several you know Asian American studies scholars who look at them to guide you know their possible syllabuses over the next year so now that the the book is out and has won this award and will hopefully circulate much more um, given the the status that we're hoping to bring to it um, how do you feel you know about all that I mean do you uh, see the importance of the work kind of um, unveiling itself especially in terms of you know these different backgrounds and, and your own voice. Yeah I am I'm
0: really just man like flattered and delighted right to receive such an award. I guess I really hope that this would interest the reader in the other winners of the award like just like you mentioned I've also you know closely followed and taught from this same list um and Oh, man, there are some books that are just so amazing from this year and, and years past. Uh, let me think. Dobbs's Interrogation Room is so wonderful. And Margaret Breeze, Love Robot. Um, Solmash Sharif's Look, you know, won a bazillion awards and for great, great, great reason. And uh, Kathy Lynchy's Split is a book that really did so much work, even getting me into poetry. I'm kind of emerging enough that I, I can still say that, you know, Kathy Lynchy's split was just so, 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 so seminal for me. Uh, there's really such an embarrassment of riches. And so I hope interested readers will dive in. What do we say? Head first, right? Or maybe in this case, heart, heart first. They would just dive into all those wonderful, wonderful works.
1: So let me ask a final question here um, in our emails. And as you introduced yourself, we just discussed that you had a new book, um, Demos, right? Or Demos. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. congratulations on that. Do you mind telling us a bit
0: about what that book's about? Yeah, sure. It's always weird when you're talking about like book stuff, because you know, I wrote Demos like two years ago and I'm talking about it now. And I wrote Colonize Me, maybe, you know, four or five years ago, and I'm and I'm talking about it now. But yeah, the new book came out just a few weeks ago, maybe a week and a half or something like that. And like you mentioned, Demos is the title. Demos is a weird title, but um, I thought it was the pitch perfect title. So Demos is the root word of democracy. And, you know, Demos meaning, you know, quote of the people, end quote. Um, And usually when we think of a nation of the people and for the people and by the people, right, all those word pairs and phrases go so neatly together in our kind of, you know, American brains, right? Uh, We're usually thinking of the Gettysburg Address. um, But it was so interesting for me to find out when I was doing my research that the origins of those phrases actually go back like 700 years ago to the 1380s and medieval England. Um, Those kind of coupled phrases, the of, for, and by the people, those actually come from the kind of OG original common man translation of the English Bible by John Wycliffe. And, you know, I know that we don't have very much time for etymology, et cetera, like a history lesson, but basically uh, during this time in the medieval Catholic church, Uh, It was this all-powerful institution, right? They were the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Um, The Catholic Church expressly forbid translating the Bible. Uh, They wanted to be the sole interpreter of God's word, right, to the people. They wanted to keep that power. Um, John Wycliffe had a kind of like F that attitude. He would never have said that. Um, But uh, he certainly believed in his writings that the power and the truth that he saw in that book should be as he writes in the foreword, you know, quote of the people for the people and by the people. And the corollary here for me is that as writers and readers, we really vibe with that, we feel that very, very deeply, right, truth is for the people, and power and politics are for the people. Um, You know, they're certainly not for a bunch of old white dudes on Capitol Hill, right, we see spirituality as for the people, power belongs to the people. Um, And in order for the U.S. to be a nation, quote, of the people, it needs to be in the hands of the people. And so in my poetics, that means that I'm always trying to connect with what it means to be human, uh, a real person, and not simply in that kind of mode of trying to show off with language. Um, That's the kind of goalpost that my new book is aiming at. Um, and you know, I would be very lucky if folks, you know, thought that I hit that mark. I
1: am not a poet so much. (laughs) I've written some poetry that I've like always hidden away, but, um, some Uh people who I know who are very good poets, they often just say like, just try not to be pedantic (laughs) in your poetry, you know, like that's a lot of the mystery there, but yeah, that book, that description sounds a lot like similar advice and I can't wait to, to be able to read that. Thank you so much. Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I hope to be in conversation with you again in a future date. And thank you so much. And congratulations again on winning the award.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. I had a wonderful time. You have so many guests. I can't wait to listen to what they said. Thank you.
2: if there's someone who thinks, well, I want to write poems without necessarily want to write about being undocumented or want to write about being queer, you don't have to. Like you can write and you should be able to write well beyond your identity. And I think there's something about like the marketplace and the sort of white readership that sort of shapes this hunger, this (laughs) insatiable hunger for these kinds of stories. And I would like to hope that People don't feel like that's their only way toward publication or toward their stories being heard. I'm here with the
1: poet Jan Henry Gray, who currently teaches at Delphi University in New York. Born in the Philippines and raised in California, where he worked as a chef, Jan lived undocumented in the US for more than 32 years. He has received fellowships from Poets, the Cook Foundation, and Kundiman. Gray's collection, Documents, won honorable mention at the AAAS Book Awards and was selected by D.A. Powell as the winner of the Poulin Poetry Prize from Boa Editions. The awards committee wrote that, quote, In documents, Jan Henry Gray's poems movingly document his family's experiences as immigrants from the Philippines trying to make a life in the U.S., as well as his own coming of age as a queer undocumented Filipino-American. In confronting how his own identity has been defined by US immigration and citizenship documents, Gray compels us to also confront the ways such documents reveal the racism, heteronormativity, fear, and contradictions of an America that upholds itself as a land of opportunity for immigrants, yet works to foreclose opportunities for so many. These poems are at times documents of deconstruction and construction, renderings of vulnerability, challenges to the official documents that define us or erase us as citizens, or navigable routes of possibility, reprieve, and freedom. The collection leads us through the confused and contradictory logic and questions of documents and emphasizes that the greatest kind of rebellion is that of authoring one's own destiny, of giving one's own life shape, of reinventing one's life, not for others' gaze, but for one's own as a way of learning how to accept the reality and worth of one's existence in a world that often says otherwise. And now to the interview. How would you describe your book? What brought you to write it?
2: Uh, So my book documents probably came out of, I like to say that it took me seven years to write, which sounds like at one point I decided to sit down and write it. And it took me seven, seven years later, I was finished. That wasn't quite... The process i say it's, it took me seven years because i wrote most of it while i was uh, taking creative writing courses as an undergrad and also in grad school but document is a poetry collection that takes a lot of material a lot of the source material from legal documents themselves uh, legal documents about american citizenship or for american citizenship and Part of what I was experiencing at the time of writing the book was different kinds of struggles and um, obstacles trying to get citizenship at the time. And so I was sort of faced with and surrounded by really like very physically the the desk that I was working on, the table I was working on at, at home where I would do my work and write my poems and do schoolwork and whatnot shared its space with these legal forms that brought me no pleasure. (laughs) And so a big part of the book's project is taking those forms themselves, the language from the forms, the actual textual appearance of the forms, and trying to poem them in some ways. So a big chunk of the book is in conversation with those kinds of texts. And then there's all sorts of escapes and leaps and wiggles around that stuff. So the book has, I like to think of it as having many things that are sort of held together, albeit loosely, but held together by this attention to documents and the documentary poetics.
1: I love the this use of poem, to poem as a verb. Yeah, why not? Um, <laughs> to think about, yeah, things that make you uncomfortable or, or documents. Um, wiggle your way around them, I suppose, as, a way, as you put it. I believe you've prepared a short reading of your work. So can you show us an example of this two poem
2: something? Sure. This, um, I'll read it, then we can talk about um, sort of how it came to be. Uh, this poem is, I'm reading one poem. It's called Acknowledgements. This is on page 80 for those following along at home. Acknowledgements. I haven't read Carlos Bulusan or Jose Rizal. I haven't read Jessica Hagedorn. I haven't read Patrick Rizal. I haven't read Rick Barrett until this year. I haven't read Nick Carbo. I Googled Eileen Tabio, Jimino Abad, Michael Mello, Fatima Lynn Wilson, Virginia Sereno. But I haven't read any of their books either. I'll probably like Catalina Carriaga. She wrote one book called Cultural Evidence and disappeared. I didn't know Randall Mann and Ronaldo Wilson were Filipino or half. I might have read them without knowing. I followed and unfollowed Oliver De La Paz on Instagram because I got bored or jealous seeing his kids at the pumpkin patch, opening presents, eating spaghetti, always eating spaghetti. I think I might like Mark Gaba He went to Iowa, then quit Denver. He says, part of the reason I left the PhD program is that I felt like anything I could say would be treated as that thing said by that guy from the islands. How insulting and misinformed, though easy to understand, because America tends to be locked in on itself as any center of the world. And the Philippines keeps representing itself as a tourist destination with beaches everywhere. The interviewer asks him, what are you going to do now? He says, I'm going to work on a painting. I think I hit upon a solution to introduce narrative to the process. As far as creation goes, that's the best thing that's happened today. To find where in that abstraction is the beginning and the end. Of course, it's going to be a process because in abstraction, to finish is to make narrativity disappear. I followed Barbara Jane Reyes for a while. I didn't like this post of hers, but I've been thinking about it for days, years. She wrote, here's the thing. You grow up as a Filipino in America, believing we are not represented in literature. This is a problem and so you dis literature. Then you learn that there are lots of Filipinos in America representing in literature. You make the decision, however, to continue dissing literature. You make the decision not to read. You diss Filipinos in America in literature. And then you go about your life pretending they, we, don't exist. That they, we, never existed in the first place. You, I, am part of the problem on every cover letter I've ever written for every school, every award, every scholarship, every fellowship, I make sure to say I was born in the Philippines so the judges know that my white sounding name belongs to me.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, I don't know which parts to to select from i love the the spaghetti conversations i love barbara jane reyes's work in there um can you tell us what you were thinking when when writing that and what inspired it
2: yeah 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 this one um has an interesting kind of origin story i was in grad school and sometimes in grad school when you are writing a lot you run out of ideas and this Came at a point where I felt like I was I'd I'd written so much that I was I felt starved or um, that there I was I was reaching for something, and so I thought I asked myself Is it possible to write a poem only made up of names? And I thought how interesting it would be to just make a list of Filipino names because I think uh, the Philippines, especially with its uh, history of colonization and its Sensibility of not only like colonialism, but you know, that this island nation, this sort of, I think of it as a sort of scattered, scattered identity. I thought people's names, Filipino names, have such a, have, can, can, they can communicate so much. And so that's where I started. And I thought, well, I literally just Googled, and then I was like, I should, I should Google like Filipino writers. Like, how interesting would that be? And that's where it started. And I was playing with the idea of just like listing or stacking names. And then I just, it sort of begged more out of me. And so I think I just sort of let myself say more. And then I started to cobble like interview, like scraps of interviews I thought were really interesting. The Mark Gaba interview was so interesting to me. And there was this Facebook post from Barbara Jane Reyes opening another tab that I was kind of like a little bit haunted by and i just thought well what if what would happen if i just jammed these seemingly disparate elements together on the same page what would happen and so that's sort of where this poem comes from it has different parts it kind of moves in different ways that's that's where it came from and how how it ends up as poem titled acknowledgments came from the notion of <laughs> wanting the word acknowledgments to show up twice on the table of contents.
1: (laughs) Your book centers also on borders and boundaries. And of course, um, in the name, um, in your own experience as an undocumented immigrant for more than 32 years um, in the United States. Can you talk about how your book sought to attend to these themes and express that experience?
2: Um, I would say that it wasn't easy to attend to those themes. Um, in the same way that I was, in a way, avoiding the paperwork that was on my desk, that I sort of saw as clutter, as um, work to do, things to address. I think I, for a long time, did not want to write about uh, my experience being undocumented in the poem, as necessarily for lots of reasons. One, it felt like I had to be secretive about it. It's not something you talk about. It's definitely not something you write about. And at the, you know, when I was writing poetry, I didn't, I hadn't read a poem about the undocumented experience. I mean, now, I mean, with the undocumented poets and, and then some, it's plentiful. There's an abundance of literature writing about this. I didn't have that advantage. How did I do it? I think I had to do it because I thought it was inevitable. It felt like it was, such a centerpiece to my daily experience. And I feel like I couldn't not write about it. I think that even when I tried to avoid it consciously, it would sort of seep in anyway. And when I say it, I mean like the kind of feelings around it and the experience of it, the feeling of being invisible, the feelings of not being heard or seen or recognized or... Official or American, or all these things that I, you know, you compound with a legal status because you are reminded of it when you apply for a driver's license or when you realize you can't get uh, federal financial aid. You know, the list goes on. And so I think these reminders, these sort of legal reminders, enter your life and the things that enter your life, I think should, could enter your poetry and your writing. So it felt inevitable.
1: So one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast with the um, the winners and the honorable mentions of uh, the book awards was to um, provide a kind of guide for educators um, who might want to teach some of these works. And this book clearly seems to me to fit very well in you know, not only Asian American studies, like literature classes, but also in um, classes about migration, about um, immigration, about undocumented migrants, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other ways that you might see this text being uh, taught? And do you have any um, tips for potential educators who might might want to do that?
2: Yeah, the first tip is you should invite me to speak to your class. <laughs> And have your institution pay me. (laughs) Um, One, because I think that's a good practice anytime you're teaching living uh, writers and living poets is you should invite them in to your class. I mean, I think it's a huge advantage for the students. Uh, I think it opens up the conversation about the book, what the book is about, possibly even like the writer themselves and the writing life and the writing process. I think there's a lot of potential potential to inviting writers who are alive to your classes. So there's that, which might be a more practical uh, answer to your question. But separately, the book gets taught often in classes and they're taught in poetry classes. They're taught in classes on migration, like you mentioned. I had someone teach it in an Asian American history class also um, so I think that the various entry points that the book provides is something that I'm very excited about and very proud of. So I think that I'm, I am I would be happy to sort of kind of let the book collaborate with people in as many ways as possible. How do you feel now that the book is finished and has won honorable mention? You know, the award from the Association of uh, Asian American Studies uh, was great. Uh, and it is an honor one thing i think about now that this book is finished is i know that it reaches people on a very specific it can reach people on a very specific level i've i've met people at readings at class visits who have told me things that i would imagine i would have told a writer of a book like this, had I encountered it when I was younger, which is, I I didn't know that you could, I didn't know you could write about this. I didn't know you could talk about this as, as, as freely as you are in the book. It's so, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how, how did you decide to let yourself be so vulnerable? Like, are not you scared? Isn't someone in your family going to read this and be upset that you are sort of, you know, airing out this very private information, Um, I think now that the book is out in the world and has its own life, people are reading it in other, you know, people are reading it in places I've never been to. That's something I think about a lot is, you know, yes, visibility, yes, reading stories that connect or vibrate with one's own very particular experience. That's, That's great. That's great. Another Bonus is, I also know that I have, I know a lot of people who are, who share one or many of the identities that kind of feed the book, you know, being undocumented, being queer, being Filipino, et cetera. And one of the things that I am excited about is that just because you have a part of your identity that you think you have to write about that you don't, you know, I know that, I I, I don't know this, but I, I want to think that if there's someone who thinks, well, I want to write poems, but I don't necessarily want, or write, want to write about being undocumented or want to write about being queer, you don't have to. Like, you can write, and you should be able to write, you know, like, wh- well beyond your identity. And I think there's something about, like, the marketplace and the sort of you know, a white readership um, that sort of shapes this kind of hunger, this, this sort of insatiable hunger for these kinds of stories. And I would like to hope that people don't feel like that's their only way toward publication or toward their stories being heard.
1: Speaking of different kinds of writing, uh, what are you writing now? Does that lead into um, a current or future project that you're working on?
2: Yeah, I, I want to work on a project that is made up of poems, but also can be easily translated into a film. So part of that comes out of my interest in cinema it also comes out of an interest in sort of working in between genres. So a poem that looks like or behaves like a screenplay or a movie and vice versa. You know, some of my favorite films are films that to me are poetic or behave poetically. And so short of making an actual feature film, I'm wondering about ways in which I can do that on the page.
1: That sounds really intriguing. I'm thinking too now of like the consistent return to film and like Jessica Hagedorn's work or Mm -hmm. um, Zach Lindmark's work or Gina Apostol's newest book, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There's this consistent acknowledgement how that the impact that film has made and to kind of, as you were to say, to poetry it or to poem (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. that media is fascinating.
2: Yeah, I don't know what exactly it looks like. And I've tried it a few times and it's really hard. I've, I've, I've failed a few times already to try to write a poem like a movie or like a even like, like a scene in a film. And I, I keep sort of tripping up on myself. And so either I'll figure it out or I'll wander away from it.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your work with us. Um, congratulations again on uh, winning the award. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for your time. Well, that's it from us for this episode. Please keep us in mind as we roll out our third episode on the AAAS Book Award winners, which will continue to focus on the awards in creative writing and will spotlight the Fiction Award winners, Xuan Juliana Wong, author of the short story collection Home Remedies, and Rico Villanueva-Shasoko, author of the story collection, The Foley Artist. Hope to see you then. Thank you for listening to The Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies with the help of the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. It is mixed by myself and Moses Caliboso, And the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band, Necking.